Kako. Thanks so much for your company today for the Aloha Friday conversation, Art, Culture, and Ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa. I know there's a lot going on today. We really appreciate you being here. Now, first up, we're exploring a new idea for sheltering homeless people on Oahu. According to point-in-time counts, over 2,000 people are living on sidewalks, in tents, and cardboard shelters looking at possible drenching rain, wind, no food, or bathrooms this weekend. If they want to, a hundred or more homeless could be sheltered at HPD's POST, Provisional Outdoor Screening and Triage Facility at Ke'ehi Lagoon. It's a new idea in that clients get immediate shelter with pets if needed, transportation to that location, and then connection to services. Clients may enter through a service provider or HPD, but we just drove on up to a locked gate there. And all around is a wide scrubby grass field. You can see a few dozen tents kind of socially distanced there behind orange barriers. Major Mike Lambert is in charge of the post. 17 years with HPD, mostly in narcotics and vice. He's a single dad with two middle school-aged sons. Two years ago, Lambert started a program linking service providers with police enforcement. He says it's a logical connection. For example, the biggest misconception is that homeless don't want shelter. That's not necessarily true because what you see in the vacancy report is 200 beds. For what category? Because those 200 beds may only be for women and families, meaning that there's no vacancies for men. But with the HONU and with this project, we just adjust to the need. So if there's no sheltered bed available, they can come here. Right. Is it your impression that there is permanent housing available out there? That is a little further down the river than what I deal with. So we're that second tier, because I like to say the first tier is the outreach workers and officers. The second tier is is this type of program in shelters. And of course, what we want to do is get them in something more long-term, whether it be supportive housing or affordable housing. Like I said, affordable is <laughs> depending on who you ask, but um, I like to believe that they mean it in the sense of where someone that works a minimum wage job could afford to put a roof over their head. That's what I'm hoping. And like I said, I I'm confident um, that those programs will come to fruition soon. What were you doing before this? So I mean, prior to were this- Were you a regular street officer? Predominantly, I've spent my whole career on the enforcement side. So the first basically 15 years of my career um, were in patrol or in the narcotics vice division. And over the last two years, I ended up in charge of a program that connects outreach workers with officers to ensure again that we are giving people the best opportunity to get off the street. So how long have you experienced working with unsheltered people? The pilot, the very first pilot um, started in 2018. It actually was just a very small pilot in Chinatown. And then when Chief Ballard took number one position, she actually took it out of the very small pilot and made it an island-wide initiative. So you've seen people in enforcement. Yes. What, what's that experience like? What so, did you see? Um, you know, when I was a rookie, actually my first assignment was Chinatown. And this is in 2002. And the problems weren't as prevalent as they are now, not even close. But you would get your call here and there. And for me personally, um, it was hard to do the enforcement knowing that I really couldn't offer them anything you know I felt bad because it's like one of those where okay I get the order there's a complaint of people being in the park for example all the park the park closes at 10 p.m. or whatever and my job is to go ahead and enforce anybody that's in violation of that and it's hard because you know you go out there and you see the fact that they're broken and sad and you know I'm over there kind of adding on to their issues, right? Because now they have a ticket to deal with. And they have to move. And then they're gonna have to figure out where else to go. And we're talking about like 1 a.m. So there's no option for them. I know that, they know that. But at the end of the day, you know, that, you know, in 2002, that was my job, right? My job was to make sure that the park was clear. Like I said, I used to feel really bad about it, but there was no other option. And just one of those where sometimes officers, they, they create a callus towards it. And a lot of it is just their own coping. So what you see fast forward is officers that seem heartless about the homeless issue when they're really not. They're just trying to build their own defense mechanism to be able to cope with having to constantly enforce against people that they know can't help it. It's pretty heartbreaking. So what I like now is that I feel that officers for our own you know, uh, emotional state can feel good about if they do have to enforce, they're well aware that they did everything they could. They offered everything under the sun. They offered shelter, like a program like this is 24-7, holidays, it never closes. And in the event that they don't take it, which is their right, 
at the very least we can sleep at night knowing that there was an offer made and by their own choice they elected to not participate in a program that was available to them okay we know are, are these viable options i gotta try to look at it from their perspective of course you know what i mean so just like anything else um not everything is going to be a perfect fit for anyone and a lot of it has to do with the timing because what people don't realize especially in our rural areas Waimanalo and Waianae there's a connection to that community whether it be family friends or just emotional attachment to the area if I'm telling you well I have an opportunity but it's all the way down San Island then not necessarily that they don't want help but it's not a good fit for them we have to have a lot more robust offerings in regional locations because for me personally I grew up in Kaneohe and should I be down on my luck? I would want to be in Kaneohe. I have, you know, family there. A lot of our families in the rural will welcome the family member in for dinner or whatever, but because they have addiction issues or mental issues, they don't feel comfortable with them staying overnight. So, like I said, again, that's very common in our rural areas, right? And actually, ironically enough, the families actually want them to be nearby, but not in the house for, for, for the fear of, like, again, their addiction or untreated mental illness. You're describing a kind of halfway house kind of thing that you would think we could create. Right. What I would think is that you, you set up regional um, transition points, right? So in other words, it's not meant to be long-term, very much like this program here, where you can come in, you know, a few days at a time. And what it is, is you have social workers on standby to try to cultivate an option for that individual. What it does is it allows them the comfort of not being moved out of the, the location they want to be in, but yet it creates the opportunity to perhaps improve their condition. Meaning that a lot of the times the, the emotional attachment or, the, or whatever other attachment is due to addiction or lack of mental health treatment. So for example, if I have anxiety, of course I don't want to go somewhere where I have no clue is, but if maybe if you treat the anxiety, right, medication or therapy, I might be more open to trying new things. And what people don't realize is that a lot of our homeless community suffers from depression. It's prevalent. It's very, very prevalent. And what people don't realize is that depression is debilitating. And we're not talking about I feel bummed. We're talking about I feel suicidal. I feel disappointed in myself. And all those type of emotions make it very difficult to improve. The reason why I'm so sensitive to people with depression is that it's common in my family. And I've seen how debilitating it can be. You can't just tell somebody experiencing true clinical depression to go get a job. It's counterproductive to even think that they need a pep talk. Um, a lot of times they need medication. A lot of times they need therapy to improve. And, you know, it's one of those where you got to look at the root of it, right? And go ahead. And then the roots for, for, for the homeless crisis is, you know, mental health issues, right? Addiction. And then you have general poverty, meaning that people that maybe they're not educated enough to hold a job that makes enough money to survive or they don't choose to, right? But what the data is showing and what I've learned from the outreach providers is that the longer they're out there, the more likely they are to either become mentally ill or become addicted to a substance, right? Um, what I hear, which is, which is just heartbreaking, is that a lot of women utilize meth to stay awake overnight so they're not sexually assaulted as they sleep. Negative people would say that, oh, that's just an excuse. But when you really talk to these people, and uh, which I do out here regularly, I have no reason to believe that that's not a genuine answer. You're helping us with things people don't realize or know about the unsheltered population. Mm -hmm. You know, I get where the community is frustrated. I get where they feel unsafe. And it's not going to be, it's not, not everybody has a heart big enough to take a step back and realize that these people are hurting. And there is a subsection of them that are bad for the community and i hate to say it probably would better be off in prison for themselves and the community but that's not the vast majority i would say the vast majority just need supportive services we gotta really step up in regards to our behavioral health services our providers are great there's just not enough detox beds we have great agencies we have a lot of people willing to take on those extra beds there's just no availability of funding mike lambert was promoted to major just last weekend, heading HPD's Community Affairs. <laughs> Congratulations, Mike. He says 250 people have gone through the post, which he was talking about here. 150 have moved into further services after stabilizing there. I mean, think about it. What would you do? Storms, wind, rain ahead this weekend. You're drenched right on the street, belongings scattered. You could lie in a tent by yourself rain and tent walls flapping in the wind, and there you could contemplate your future.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering reconnections to the art, courtyards, and the museum community. Open Thursdays to Sundays with new evening hours. HonoluluMuseum.org. Tune in to HPR One Saturday night for the next Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note Virtually Live. This week, it's Jeff Peterson performing traditional and original music on slack key guitar. He'll play some brand new music, plus slack key jazz, and music from his travels around the world. And we'll hear an interview with Jeff as well. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on the HPR mobile app. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hoku's Restaurant, featuring Chef Jonathan Mizukami, bringing new direction from culinary experiences across the globe, including the French Laundry in Napa Valley. Reservations at kahalaresort.com. Kimi Howell Lee is a writer and director from New York City, Stanford film grad. She started at Snapchat and is now a story editor at Netflix, and a filmmaker herself, by the way. She spent time in Hawaii growing up. She's got relatives here. And Kimi's new film is a transgender coming-of-age story that unfolds in the community at Pu'uhonua o Waianae, the encampment at Waianae Boat Harbor, where hundreds of people have found shelter over the years. I asked Kimi her impressions of that place. You know, I think at first it felt a little bit impenetrable. Obviously, you kind of need Twinkle's blessing and the people who live there's blessing. But it was just such a gorgeous community and it seemed like it was so well organized, I think would be the first thing that comes to mind. You know, Twinkle has a very well polished system. Um, she has leaders that are sort of making sure that different sections are taken care of. She really instills this concept of giving back, I think. You know, she, she has the kids do community service once a week. There's this donation tent and they seem to always be involved in all of these projects that are giving back to YNI. Oh, what's the uh, secret of her control? Her what's her? Yeah, what you know? What <laughs> I don't want to speak for her, but you know, I think I think she's a badass. I think she has tremendous compassion, you know, but she also can lay down the law, and she has a vision. That's what's truly, truly so remarkable. It's like she really has created this thriving community, and it's so impressive that she's been able to raise the money to purchase permanent land. I was texting with her a few weeks ago, and they're starting to relocate people and, you know, build, and they still need to find funds to essentially complete their project, but she's audacious, she's daring, she goes for it. Was there something particular about Malia that made you think you could go deeper with her? You know, I think just seeing how unfazed she was, you know, I think that it is, she was quite young when I met her, she was 16. She just seemed quite confident in herself, you know, and I think we had sort of done a few interviews and improvisational sessions, and she was just very generous about the true elements of her life. And there were some uncanny things with what I'd written and how they'd aligned with her life, so it sort of felt like this strange sign. But in the script, before I'd met her, her name's Malia Kamalani, and in my script, it was Mahina Kamalani. You know, she freaked out when she first saw it. I freaked out. It just sort of felt like this kinetic, meant-to-be moment. <laughs> More than serendipity, even. I tell you, Kimmy Lee, talking about her relationship with Twinkle Borge, making the film Kama'aina, which opens this year's Rainbow Film Festival. And it's a fundraiser for the Pu'uhonua Owayanai. July 31st, the festival looks great. 20 shorts, all streaming edgy, heart-rending subjects. Hawaii's Rainbow Film Festival, that's July 31st through August 12th. So here's the idea. Art Bar. Everything you love about art and everything you love about bars together in one Zoom call. <laughs> that was my pitch to four thoughtful artists and thinkers. You're about to hear what happened. Curator, director of UH Galleries, Micah Pollock, new from Brooklyn, describes how COVID-19 is growing her roots here. Artist educator Reem Basus throws in exactly what should be done with those torn down statues. An artist Former UH Art Chair Gay Chan describes her work. You can participate anytime in Kane Ohe. And we'll jump in with Taylor Chang, curator 
She runs the Doris Duke Theater. Taylor begins a thread here about experiences and voices, those that survive and those that are forgotten. With so much content moving to the virtual space, one of the big challenges has been to be extra rigorous with what we decide to do online when we know that there's so much online and, and there's this kind of fatigue of constantly being in front of our computers that in and of itself changes the experience. So in a very nuts and bolts way, it's a whole new landscape that we're navigating and, and sort of every single arts organization that you know exhibits films are navigating that as well. So Taylor, group pleasure of enjoying films and performance together is getting fully reviewed. What's exciting is that there's extremely creative collaborations and conversations that are happening, trying to take advantage of the new landscape that's in front of us. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities, I think, to address a lot of the inequities within our industry at this time. That concern with systemic inequity requires deep soul-searching, you're saying, Taylor, on the exhibiting end. And for artists, Gay, your art practice has long been outside of museums in the community. I mean, how, how have these pandemic times affected your work? My practice for the last 10 to 15 years is really made for this moment. The work that I primarily do is through the moniker of eating in public and is trying to reinvigorate the demands for the commons and then creating situations for us to be prepared to live there. There are a lot of interests right now and there's almost urgency to know how to do many of the things that I've been trying to establish for many years. So I'm actually pretty excited about this opportunity. And I'll put those, put what I've done in two fields. One is more of a mitigation project. Um, me and now it's about 25 people, I think, half artists and half non-artists would come together as a collective called Seamsters Union. And we've been making masks for donations out of upcycled material. We've made over 3,000 masks and donated them so far. We repurpose our practice to do something that's very practical, functional, and tangible in terms of mutual aid. So that's one thread. The other is establishing free stores and knowledge and practice about edible weeds. I've set up edible weed planters in front of my house on curbside, dug up weeds from my neighborhood, and then I offer recipes. <laughs> this is right outside your place on Lihikai in Kaneohe. Ever since I put out curbside projects, I've talked to so many people and predominantly strangers. So that's pretty exciting. Also on the curbside, I've put in a, a pretty significant free store now, mostly on plants. The momentum is primarily driven by a group I've joined on Facebook called 808 Green Thumbs. And these are maniacal, nerdy gardeners. So, you know, again, that we affirm together that the commons is a world of abundance instead of scarcity like capitalism. And it's, it's always too much. Well, what are you talking about when you, t when you say the commons? I think that our imagination have been really kind of colonized by the nation state system and capitalist system. And so having commons, like when we establish free stores, when you can go somewhere where no one demands that you have to prove anything for you to leave something to share or take something that's there, except that you participate in taking care of that space of sharing. And that's, um, you know, very small pieces of commons, but nonetheless, it creates the opportunity for us to learn how to live there with other people. How we live with others was like the subtext of those historic ala photographs you showed recently at the John Young, Micah. How has your approach to curating adjusted since COVID? I agree with Taylor. I think at the beginning of this, there is this impulse to think about digitizing everything and, and making everything accessible in that way. I think there's also questions about what an institution is, what a museum is, what communities we serve. In the past 20 years, there's also been a real interest in hosting talks and lectures and screenings and engaging in a kind of extended practice that might have been based on relational aesthetics. And I think now we really do have to think somewhat differently about what it means to bring people together, what that looks like in an art space. And again, I've been so moved by watching protests outside of museum spaces, you know, in the street, and seeing people move to come together around political issues. So Reen, painter that you are, what do you make of the street expression we've been seeing? It's been great to see uh, protest signs. I mean, I'm a huge fan of uh, propaganda art, and it's just been very exciting to see, whether it be in Mauna Kea or in um, the Lebanese protests or uh, the Black Lives Matter protests. I guess now is not the time to start uh, drawing lines and saying this is art and that is not. I think the thing to consider is whether it has substance or not. 
it's not that anything goes, but just because this is a moment doesn't mean everybody should be doing work just for the sake of doing work. You really have to be thoughtful. It has to have substance. And that's what separates it, in my opinion. I guess I've never found it very useful to draw lines between what is art and what is not art. Micah? I think one of the big shifts in terms of people's thinking in the art world that I'm participating in is, is noticing, at least at the beginning, when there were no more art fairs, how people seemed relieved. This demand to ship giant works of art across the globe. Just the carbon footprint that certain parts of that industry were taking up, I'm hoping that that will get interrogated. And something that just on a personal level, when President Trump demanded that people working in, in meat processing plants had to go back to work, I realized that I shouldn't be eating factory processed meat at all and shifted to finding local protein sources. And it's been incredible as a sort of connection to this place, which I hadn't expected, and as a way to meet my neighbors who have connections to people fishing and to wild boar and to sustainably raised chicken. It's kind of crazy that it took this for me to realize that I shouldn't be buying meats that's been shipped to this island from the mainland. But yeah, I guess it's part of what Gay said, just thinking about some of these systems that have become invisible, really. Right. And Taylor? we're all being forced to be creative in, in ways that we never really anticipated or expected. And sort of as an extension of that, we know that that is going to directly impact the art that we typically exhibit or promote within our organizations or within our practice. It will only benefit us as a community, as a society, to be able to creatively integrate the idea of art, the idea of what art can be for us into every single aspect of our lives. If we want to change the systems that we live in, it's going to take, you know, momentous amount of creativity and artful thinking. Otherwise, it's, it's back to business as usual. So it's worth it to embrace the blurriness between what is art and what isn't and to question sort of how we used to consider art to be maybe pre-COVID and what we consider to be more important art now. Are you kind of saying that art is a practice or an approach has broader applicability now maybe? Because art as a separate field, I'm losing the definition of it. I think that that blurriness of, of what we consider art to be right now is, is a great one because it gives everybody a chance to define it for themselves and to prioritize it and, and use it in ways that benefits them and their communities. I don't think museums or, or organizations that are sort of, you know, stereotypically be pillars of art are always the best pillars of art in the community, especially during times like this. You're pointing to a possible shift in values. Micah? For example, I think the discussion about what statues should be in public spaces right now is really fascinating. And, you know, it feels very central to sort of what we're all talking about and paying attention to. I'm delighted to see people thinking about the histories that these monuments represent. I think it's not enough to just take them down. I think that they need to be taken down with meaning and that there should be a response and there should be a lot of documentation. And I think that rather than just making them disappear, I would like to see them reinstalled with a plaque describing what these people have done. I think that's really important and it's part of education. You know, it's interesting to kind of think of erasure in our in our practice, what we choose to put up on a wall in a gallery space, what we decide to keep hidden away in the vault, and how in, in films, how there is erasure in, in the ways we tell stories in cinema. We're reckoning with centuries of erasure of Black communities, of Indigenous communities, that continues to happen right now. And when we're questioning sort of the economies that we're working within, you have to look at every single part of the process, from the making of the thing, to the exhibiting of the thing, to what happens after the thing. When we think about reckoning with centuries of inequity, you have to be practicing system thinking. And so when we're looking at sort of, you know, art industry or an art world, that's what we're experiencing right now. We have, we're like having to question every single part of our process to reckon with what is the best way to continue with our practice during these times. I think a lot of us don't have a choice. Um, I'm going to sound really romantic right now and say that this is an addiction, this practice. A lot of us don't have a choice and we find a way to do it. Um, and small scale, large scale, whatever. You know, I have a super tiny apartment. 
I have a lap desk and that's what I work on. And, you know, you just keep going on. No choice in the matter. And I'm not even thinking about exhibiting or connecting or this is just a way of survival. It's a very fundamental way for me to survive personally. And I mean, I can't help anyone in any capacity unless I'm surviving. And so it begins here. <laughs> What's your work about now? For the past year, my research has been about death, cultural practices uh, around death, different speculations about what happens after death. It's connected to my dealing with post-war survival, having come out of a brutal history and uh, just kind of questioning, well, where have they all gone? You're talking about events and people lost in the Lebanese Civil War, which you experienced. And this continues to happen. So all of this is not new to me. The protesting is not new. What a lot of people are calling a moment in American history is not a new thing for me. I'll push it all the way to the end where people actually die from this. What happens then? So that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> I mean, it's so essential that you are part of this conversation. Like, you know, from the exhibitor perspective, we have this, like, I, I feel like I have a responsibility to do whatever we have to do to make sure that the art that artists are making right now is going to be properly supported. So what is an exhibitor's responsibility to make sure that there's always going to be channels and spaces in which that work will be continually brought forth and not erased from the community that we're in? Taylor Chang committing to your stories. Also, Reem Basus, Micah Pollock, and Gay Chan. Micah's galleries at UH are opening again in August. Taylor's indispensable Surf Film Fest is entirely online right now through August 2nd. As you heard from Derek Malama earlier in the program, Hurricane Douglas continues to approach the islands. HPR's news director, Bill Dorman, is here. He's got an update on the storm's progress. Bill. Aloha, Noe. The National Weather Service just had its latest briefing at the top of the hour, and Douglas remains a powerful storm on the move. Hawaii and Maui counties are now under hurricane watch, which means that hurricane conditions are possible within the next 36 to 48 hours. Now, parts of the state likely to feel impacts starting as soon as tomorrow with high surf, especially tomorrow night into Sunday. Latest word from National Weather Service is that Douglas will be near the main Hawaiian islands on Sunday and Monday. Uh, they go on to say in their statement that Douglas will continue to quickly approach the main Hawaiian Islands, passing dangerously close to or over the islands on Sunday. Dangerous life-threatening surf will arrive ahead of the hurricane on Saturday. Heavy rain, increasing winds possible on Big Island starting Saturday night, and then spreading up the island chain on uh, Sunday. And again, folks shouldn't get caught up in, oh, is it a hurricane or a tropical storm? I mean, the wind speed is a relative factor. If it's more than 74 miles an hour, then it's a hurricane. But the impacts are uh, very, very similar. Bottom line for everybody, be smart about preparations, stay informed about timing, potential impacts, stay alert. You can find some good information, by the way, on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for a box that says what to know as Hurricane Douglas sets its sights on Hawaii. Sounds like the very thing we need. Thanks so much, Bill. You bet. Thanks, sir. HPR's Agile News Director. And now, with 60 new COVID-19 cases in Hawaii, it's time to take a look at coronavirus developments around the globe with the BBC. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Friday the 24th of July. I'm Janat Jalil. There are concerns about new surges of COVID-19 infections in Europe, questions over whether the rescheduled Tokyo Olympics will go ahead next year, and Formula One cancels its races in the Americas. Health authorities in Spain are warning of a new wave of coronavirus infections. The health ministry has reported nearly 1,000 new cases in 24 hours, the highest number since lockdown was eased last month. Guy Hedgeco reports. The Spanish government was expecting new outbreaks of coronavirus after lifting the lockdown. But in the last two weeks, the number of infections registered per 100,000 inhabitants has tripled. 
Maria Jose Sierra of the government's health emergency department said that the country could be seeing a second wave of the virus. The northeastern regions of Catalonia and Aragon are the main concern. In recent days, the cities of Barcelona and Zaragoza have reintroduced some restrictions in an attempt to bring the virus under control. Poland has also recorded another increase in cases with a rise of more than 450, the highest since mid-June. The deputy prime minister said the spike was from coal mines in the upper Silesia region and there were no plans to introduce lockdown. In the Netherlands, four of the top healthcare professionals have warned the government it needs to implement new coronavirus restrictions within three days to avoid a second spike. And the UK Prime Minister has admitted that the government didn't understand coronavirus in the first few weeks and months of the epidemic in Britain. Boris Johnson said there were very open questions about whether lockdown came too late. A marked change from ministers' previous insistence that the right decisions were taken at the right time. Fireworks have been set off at more than 100 locations around Japan to mark the exact moment the opening ceremony of the 2020 Olympic Games would have kicked off in Tokyo. They've been postponed for a year because of the pandemic. But with daily infections in Japan reaching record levels this week, there are now growing doubts about whether the Games will ever be held. Our Tokyo correspondent, Rupert Wingfield-Hayes, has been speaking to one of the athletes who had been hoping to take part this year. Tetsu Sotomura was one of Japan's best trampolinists. Now at 35, Tokyo 2020 was going to be his last hurrah. Back in 2008, if the Beijing Games had been postponed by a year, I would have thought OK, he tells me. But now I'm 35, a year feels like a long time. But there is another reason Tetsuya is retiring. He thinks Tokyo 2021 may never happen. An opinion poll done by the Kyodo News Agency this week found just 23% of Japanese now support holding the Games if COVID infections are still widespread next year. President Trump has cancelled the pre-election Republican Party convention in Florida, blaming the coronavirus flare-up. He said it wasn't the right time, but that he would still give a convention speech in a different form. It comes as a number of cases of COVID-19 in the US has exceeded 4 million. Part of the convention will go ahead in North Carolina, where Mr Trump will be formally nominated as a Republican presidential candidate on the 24th of August. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights in Zimbabwe has expressed fears that the authorities there are using coronavirus restrictions as an excuse to restrict freedom of expression and assembly. A spokeswoman for the UN office, Liz Throssell, quoted reports of police using force to disperse and arrest health workers as they've protested over pay and working conditions. We are concerned at allegations in Zimbabwe which suggest that the authorities may be using the COVID-19 pandemic as a pretext to clamp down on freedom of expression and freedom of peaceful assembly and association. Merely calling for a peaceful protest or participating in a peaceful protest are an exercise of recognised human rights. We're also concerned at reports of police using force to disperse and arrest nurses and health workers for infringing lockdown restrictions as they were trying to protest for better salaries and working conditions. South African public schools were closed for a month from Monday following a surge in coronavirus infections. President Cyril Ramaphosa has confirmed that the number of cases has passed 400,000. He said it was important to stop schools potentially spreading the virus. South Africa has the fifth highest number of cases worldwide. Formula One has scrapped this season's races in the United States, Canada, Mexico and Brazil because of the coronavirus pandemic. The organisers believe it would be irresponsible to go ahead with the events as infection rates in the Americas remain high. This is a coronavirus global update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the Executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. 
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Michael Gelb, author of Creativity On Demand. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to ignite and sustain the fire of genius. Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Shamanad University and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Vote by mail ballots arrived this week, and candidates and caucuses or, or, or causes are all clamoring for your attention, especially online. There have been a lot of warnings as well online about misinformation and even questionable players. AP reported recently that a network of Facebook groups united against COVID precautions is rife with misinformation and is turning against a new enemy, BLM, or Black Lives Matter. On the other hand, when organizers of a Trump rally in Tulsa in June reported over a million ticket requests and only about 6,000 people showed up, K-pop fans or fans of Korean pop music were called out for using fan tactics in the political arena. Talk about power. Fans of K-pop supergroup BTS matched the band's $1 million donation to BLM in just 24 hours. Professor Cedar Balseji started out as a fan herself in South Korea in the mid-90s. She's teaching now at Indiana University and says her students willingly learn history to contemporary politics, all through K-pop. I published a paper like two weeks ago, and it was about soft power and cultural diplomacy and the way that the Korean government uses K-pop fans as sort of free advertising of Korea. Like one of the things they love to do is encourage cover dance. What's a cover dance? Oh, it's when if you liked some BTS song and you learned the choreography to that song and because it's usually young people who don't have much money in parking lots, parking garages, community centers, malls. And then people are walking by and they're like, oh, look at these young people like doing something really cool, like something really fun. Cover dance is just kind of like this way that K-pop gets spread. And in the article, I talked about it as kind of, you know, the Korean government was borrowing these bodies to literally approach people in countries all over the world and present something Korean Using culture as a wedge internationally, though, has been a conscious effort on the part of the South Korean government, though, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Films and so on. Could you talk a little about that? You know, the South has no, basically no natural resources except for people. And so they've got smart people. They've got creative people. Back in 1994, somebody in a meeting with the president said, Jurassic Park has made the same amount of money as selling 1.5 million Hyundai automobiles. And something clicked in the mind of that president and culture is an industry. Culture is a way that we can employ people. We don't need to have a lot of raw materials. We can do this. And so the government's attitude towards cultural industries changed really dramatically and they started creating all sorts of like tax breaks for investing in cultural industries and they gave preferential bank loans and they changed the policies and Koreans are are really good at making these cultural products whether we're talking about games or movies or dramas or the music somebody might say like ah it just sounds like American pop but like sung in Korean but the moment you start to like really dive into it you realize like actually there's a lot of different stuff going on here. When you actually look at the productions that come out of Korea. Would you say then that South Korea is putting out cutting edge media? Absolutely. K-dramas are usually 16 to 20 or so episodes. One season. That's it. They just make these like long form movies with a really, really good plot. And then it's done. Now in America, it's like, hey, we got an audience. Let's do the next 
10 years of these same people. And that same actor, that same director could have gone on and done something juicy and fun and fresh and in a totally different like genre, but instead they're stuck. So you're saying in Korea, somehow they're coming up with new stuff all the time? Twists on wild plots. It's been absolutely astonishing. But let's talk about their fans now, the audience, because, you know, even on that Oscar night, those winners credited Korean fans for shaping their media. And you've written about how Korean fans shape the media. The way that K-pop is created the fans are given a certain amount of power. They get the fans to invest in the idols. They say, if you can raise the idols well, they will be successful. So the fans have this feeling of empowerment vis-a-vis the the idols. So the fans are responsible for making campaigns to elevate the artists into the eyes of the public. The entertainment company and the artists create the product now if the fans respond to it, then it's possible to make it into something. One of the ways that artists and agencies direct fan energy is make the artists look good by donating in their name. Make the artists look good by going out and doing volunteer work in their name. I mean, you, you heard about that Black Lives Matter donation. 24 hours, one in an army is able to motivate people to donate a matching one million. Yes, BTS has a big fan group. BTS is responsible for more than two million in UNICEF donations. But how about how it's playing in the U.S.? Do you think that K-pop fans had some kind of influence on the Trump rally in uh, Tulsa? K-pop activism has included things like buying tickets en masse, and that's actually buying the tickets. This one was free. This is well within the K-pop playbook. Um, you know, what percentage of these people would you say are Korean? Oh, not, I mean, American fans? Not, yeah. not many. American K-pop fans are primarily female people of color, 20s mostly. A lot of African-American, a lot of Latinx. This is a very, very diverse fandom. If you go to a concert, you go to LA, it's just Latinx. You're saying that K-pop is kind of a alternative cultural space in America. LGBTQ friendly, ethnic minorities. It's really inspiring. I've interviewed people at concerts saying K-pop saved my life. K-pop is the positivity that gave me family, that gave me community, that gave me something positive in my life. Those K-pop idols, they're not putting up anything negative. It's goofy, it's fun, it's approachable, it's inspiring. So it's like this constant source of good feelings for people. Like that's what people are getting out of K-pop. It sounds really freaking cheesy. I totally understand that it sounds cheesy. <laughs> or just what we need. But yeah. Where do you see this going? I think that people are learning all these digital online organizing tools and fans have realized, oh, the things that we already know how to do can actually accomplish goals that we have. So they're learning and they're teaching each other and they're growing. And, you know, I mean, I think it's pretty beautiful. <laughs> Professor Cedar Bao Seiji. And here, K-pop supergroup BTS just released their video for We Are Together, Bulletproof. <laughs> Quite the contemporary al anthem, Bulletproof, Eternal, it's BTS. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, 
which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor, Hawaii Naturopathic Retreat Center. They say that 15 minutes of classical music a day is all it takes for keiki to reap benefits from this rich art form. How do you do that? Simple. Tune to HPR2, your home for classical music, while they're doing homework, getting ready for bed, or in the car with you. It's easy, and it'll help lay the foundation for a lifetime of music appreciation. Listen to HPR2 wherever you are. Tune in on your radio, stream on our mobile app, or listen on your smart speaker. We'll close the hour on Maui, Kula, actually, in the studio of Steve Grimes, Luthier. He's made a thousand instruments now, and one of the guitar styles he's known for making has two sound holes. What? Well, picture the guitar as a woman's body, okay? The neck with frets. A double sound hole guitar has holes where breasts would be, leaving the bottom half to vibrate fully. Steve's story starts 40 years ago when he was planning to move up the ranks as an engineer until he happened to build a mandolin. I was just blown away, and I thought, well, there goes my career going. <laughs> what was so great about about that instrument? I wouldn't say there was anything noteworthy about it, except that it actually worked, and it played in tune. But what it did was it made me think that I, I actually made something that made music. And the idea of that really intrigued me to the point where I couldn't find enough things to read. I read books on violin making. There were very, very few books at the time on guitar making, but that got me going. I How many years has it been? Well, I, I moved here, let me see, what is it, 82, so it's uh, 38 years ago. And for, for many, many years I did repair work and I really got to know the Maui musical community very well. And I was an authorized repairman for Gibson, Martin, Fender, most of the main companies. And they would send their repairs from Hawaii, Oahu, Big Island. And so my entire shop was filled with repair work. And within a few years, I met Kaola Beamer. He had a repair job for me, and he brought in this double-hole guitar. And I'd never seen anything like it. And I took a look outside, inside. I wanted to see how it was braced, the internal construction of the instrument. It looked overbuilt to me. The instrument was heavy. It projected well, but it had a thinness to it. The thing is, it had two sound holes, one on either side it of the strings. It had two sound holes, correct. It had two sound holes, and I hadn't seen something like that before, so I was very curious. What did he like about them? I think he liked the fact that uh, this design, the double hole design, really lends itself to the tonality of a slack key guitar. In slack key guitar, the lower strings are lower. So the A and the E string are tuned down. The E strings tuned down to D and sometimes even as far as C. The speaker of the guitar, the part of the soundboard that really vibrates is from the sound holes back to the bottom of the guitar, the tail. That is the main speaker. And so by moving the sound hole to the upper part, you create a larger speaker that's not interrupted by a sound hole. Could we hear that at all? I mean, you think... Um... I just happen, I just happen to have a, a guitar here. It's a double sound hole guitar with a German spruce top and Brazilian rosewood sides and back. And then one of the more popular uh, slack key tunings is called C Wahine. And that's where the E string is tuned all the way down to C. you say will be better represented with that double sound hole. If you are a player that uses uh, some of these lower tunings, you'll be pleased with the sound of a double hole guitar because it has a softer, warmer richness in the lower notes than a center sound hole guitar. And slack key music is all about softness and richness. <laughs> I know a lot of musicians on Maui, I just had my 1,000th instrument party. We sold out about a month before, 400 people, great local musicians. Some came from Kauai, from Oahu. Could you share me some artists that you've worked with over the years? Well, I just had the pleasure in building two guitars for Paul Simon, two for him in December. 
He came up in March and he brought Woody Harrelson with him. Woody is a guitar player, so Woody ordered a guitar. And the year before, I had the pleasure of building a guitar for Jackson Brown. Five guitars for George Benson. Steve Miller has 11. Well, tell us, you're, you're a songwriter as well. Uh, tell us about the song you just completed about our COVID experience. It's kind of an ode to optimism. It's a song called After the Rain. Uh-huh. I wrote it as just to say, you know, we got to hang in there and not with divisiveness, we have to come together as a species. You know, you've seen the old movies that deal with alien invasion, and whenever an alien is invading the Earth, the human species comes together to fight it as one unit. And that's kind of the mentality that we need now to fight this. It's a song called After the Rain, and it talks about, you know, after every storm, the sun comes out. Check Steve Graham's website for the new music video of this song, after the rain. The walls of this old house weren't meant to be a shelter to hide us from things that we can't even see. These turbulent times, all the lightning and thunder will wane. And we'll splash through Puddles of trouble and pain Catch drops of sunlight After the rain Well, I guess that's about it for this Aloha Friday. Thank you so much for joining us. We just love to hear from you, too. Call our topic line, leave us your comments, and that number's 808-792-8217. Love that email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Comments on Facebook, we love it. The conversation at HPR, or you can tweet us, or go to the HPR website and check the conversation back shows. I mean, they're just wonderful to check out. This program is produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, and Jason Ubai, hardworking team. Our jazzy theme music's courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Talk to me on Instagram. Your friend and mine, the tireless Catherine Cruz, is back on Monday to pick up the conversation. Meanwhile, let's take care of each other, okay? Happy Aloha Friday. See you back here Monday. Mm-hmm.